For a time such as this, what is it that we can really do in the world around us? No one asked to be born, to live in the moment in which they dwell, but yet, here we are, and here we are found. You are here in this moment, and God has commanded us to make good on the talents entrusted to us as people who shine the light to the world around us. So today, here at Kingdom of the Logos, this Bible study of critical thinking and adventure, we are going to be talking about what we can do to shine the light to the world around us. Critical thinking is something that we all need to have in our lives. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there's one other with me here in the studio as well. I'm Pastor Amanda. And even though Pastor Mike is not with us today, he did put together the buy, sell, or hold for at the end. Hmm. There's a lot of people wondering, you know, is Christ going to return soon? All of these questions. And Amanda's over there laughing. Um, but it is a serious concern. Oh, yes. A very serious concern. Uh, Pastor Mike has a list for us of things you don't want to wear when Christ returns. <laughs> and it's a pretty good list. So we'll look at that at the end. But for now, let's talk about what we can do. What can we do in the time in which we have been placed on this earth? Pastor Amanda, would you open us up in prayer as we jump into this? Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings, how you have showed up in the lives of your people. And so now as we respond uh, to your grace, may you give us uh, strength and uh, wisdom, and may everything we do be for you and for your glory. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So today we have three segments for you. The first two are going to be Bible studies, and the last one is going to be that bicella hold, just a little bit of time to have some fun and relax. But they're also kind of serious because you actually do want to be thinking about what you would be wearing when Christ returns. <laughs> but we're going to be looking at some quotes from classic pieces of literature, and we're going to frame that around some different concepts in Scripture. And the first conversation we're going to have is going to look around Esther 4. And there's a great line that we often quote, you know, Perhaps you were here for a time such as this. I want us to look at that, and I want us to also look at verse 13 in Esther chapter 4 and 14 as well. Pastor Amanda, could you read for us these two verses out sure. of the book of Esther? Hear the word of the Lord out of Esther's, Esther chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all other Jews? For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from other quarter, from another quarter, but you and your family's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. All right. Thank you, Pastor Amanda. One of the things which is really interesting about life is no one asked to be born, but yet here we are. And there's some interesting quotes that we find throughout classics of literature which really stimulate our minds. They bring us to this moment of critical thinking where we say, we didn't ask to be here, but what do we do? Do we rebel against life? Do we rebel against all creation? Or do we make good on the talents we have? Perhaps you are here for a time such as this. And in our world today, we need to be people who really realize we can do the good work of the gospel by shining the light. Our world has trained us to talk about everything other than truth, perspective, bias, angle, all this stuff. We need to be asking the question, what is truth? Do we love our fellow creature as sons and daughters of God who need to be restored to him? Do we start with that premise and be able to value people that way? So let me start with this first quote, and then I'm going to let Pastor Amanda respond to it, and then we'll kind of spend some time dissecting this. So John Milton in Paradise Lost, he has a great line in that poem which captures how people rebel against life. From Paradise Lost, it says, Did I request thee, Maker, from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? 
And in that, we find the rebellious creature says, God, you didn't ask me for my permission to make me, and therefore I'm going to rebel against you. Amanda, what are your thoughts on this? And how does that really tie back into what we saw there in Esther? Mm. Well, I think, yeah, I think it's an interesting response to rebel against your the God-given design because it, almost in rebelling, you are still living into the design God has given you in the sense of God created us to have free will. And so although you are not using your God-given design appropriately, you cannot escape the fact that God has created you, even in your rebellion. And it it is... It is interesting to me in this in this uh, poem that that Milton has written for us um, th- that they think rebellion is is establishing themselves as God, which is really what then again he's speaking about kind of the temptation in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve trying to say, well, we're going to be as smart as God, we're going to be as wise as God, and it is almost in doing it their own way that they just realize actually how incapable they are of doing those things. And even in the rebellion, you are still admitting that God is in control. And it just, it, I find it fascinating as we stand in these, these spaces of us trying to assert our will on things, that we realize just how completely inept we are into following what God has called us to do. And then, it, and then the story of Esther comes to us and says, okay, what if you used your free will to help others. Like instead of trying to rebel and pull away from where God has called you and in that you're living half the life you 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 could live, what if you stepped fully into that call and what could happen there? Yeah, really that's the question of what if you actually become the one God wants you to be? What if you actually step into that? And there in the book of Esther, you do see her do that. She makes that move. They're going from chapter 4 to chapter 5. She puts on the royal robes. She steps into being the, the queen of this you know empire, which is pretty massive, one of the largest empires in history, and she steps into that, and it's, it's a pretty phenomenal thing. She's not just a figurehead. She's not just there breathing, existing, but she's really living. She's really being the queen. And one of the things you kind of mentioned, this rebellion we have, a lot of times people rebel against God thinking they're rejecting him, but then you still have to use your free will a little bit. You know, It's very popular in our world to go along with the thinking that says there's no meaning to life. You're just a random accident where some proteins and molecules got together and decided to be a life form. But if that's the case, then there is no truth. There is no beauty. There is no goodness because there's no difference between a trash bag, which I threw away yesterday, and the Empire State Building. There's no difference between, you know, the Golden Great Bridge and a rock outside. There's, there's no architecture. There's no truth. There's no beauty. It doesn't matter if a man is faithful to his wife, if you honor your contracts, because you're just there accidentally. There's no broader meaning. There's no truth. And one of the things that I find is built into this rebellion, there is this desire to dabble in free will, to dabble in the good things of God. And I'm using that word deliberately. You kind of want to play with it a little bit, but not commit to it. Like, I'm going to dabble in God's truth. I'm going to dabble in believing that truth is real. I'm going to dabble in some art and some beauty. But um, I'm also going to be like a robber who steals the products of God's work and then says, God, you don't deserve to be the rightful master of all creation. And oddly enough, if Adam and Eve actually live up to their calling, then they're the kings and queens of this terrestrial domain. They don't actually rule heaven and all creation, but they have a higher position than just a rock. When they rebel against that, they fall. So I'll, I don't know. I'll let you kind of respond to that some. Yeah. Um, 
sorry, gathering my thoughts, but no, I think that is the interesting thing in trying to assert our dominance, right? So in trying to build the Tower of Babel is actually where division comes. In trying to assert that we're better than rocks and animals is where we find ourselves actually probably living closer to being rocks and beasts. Um, we find ourselves kind of in a, an odd switch. Um, and to pursue God's grace and strength in the world and to respond to that. And I think that's the thing. When grace has come, when, when we become aware of God's prevenient grace that has been reaching out to us long before we were even alive... Um, the grace that is interwoven into all creation and all life, when we finally become aware of it and respond to it, we respond to it, whether that is in the positive or the negative. We cannot yeah. escape grace. And I mean, to even think even uh, eschatol uh, cannot turn that into an adjective, but to think even of the eschaton, even in the depths of hell, that is space that God made for us to reject God. Yeah. So even there, where God does not exist, God is still present. Because God has allowed that space to exist. And and we find ourselves then, so the question is not whether or not we can run away from God. It is, can we be faithful to run towards God? And what would that look like for our world? And, and I think also to say that, yeah, to dabble, I think there's lots of people who are doing good for this world. And they, they may not know Christ or confess Christ, and I would never try to rope them in because I think that would be insulting to their intelligence as well as to be like, oh, you're secretly a Christian. You just don't know it. No, I think they're. So but, you're basically saying let people make their own confession and not be the judge of the living. And the right. Living. But I think we can still then also confess to say they are doing good. They've reached a, a, a small portion of it, but they are trying to to follow that prevenient grace, even if they're not quite sure that's what that is yet and allow God to convict and conform their hearts when they are ready for that. And I think what, and I say all that, and I may have gone off, or I definitely went off on a tangent, but I say that for those of us who know God's grace to be God's grace, who can confess it and know it, how much more of a responsibility do we have than to respond in faithfulness? And I think for the church, Mordecai is not speaking to Haman. Uh, Mordecai is not speaking to the general populace. He is speaking to a person within the promise the people of God, and saying, look, just because you have more authority, and honestly, also, she had a lot more to lose. She could lose her life for this. But you have, much grace has been given to you, and now it is being demanded that you are responsible for it. And I think for those of us who have participated in the life of God in this unique way that is called the church, we have the awesome responsibility. And I think all too often we want to be Esther hiding in her chambers, not the Esther that puts on her royal robes and shows up um, and calls people to task. Yeah. And, you know, since we're doing a lot of quotes from literature, <laughs> let's do we, we did some, you know, classics of literature. We did John Milton earlier. We're going to get to some other stuff. Um, the Spider-Man quote with great. Uh, power comes great, great responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. Spider-Man doesn't ask to become Spider-Man. Peter Parker doesn't ask for that. But yet, once he finds himself in that moment, and this is one of the things which actually the Tobey Maguire series does really well. I actually think they capture it better than the Tom Holland one, which is going to make a lot of people mad. <laughs> but there's a great scene where Uncle Ben is in the car with Peter Parker, who's Spider-Man. And Uncle Ben tells Peter, he says, you know, I've been there. I understand where you're at. And when I was a, a kid and I saw this movie, I was like, oh, he doesn't know he's really Spider-Man. He hasn't been there. He doesn't really know. And 
That's, of course, what Peter Parker thinks. Peter's sitting over there. He's like, Uncle Ben doesn't really know. He has no idea what I'm going through. But that's wrong. Uncle Ben actually does know. You don't have to be Spider-Man to have that unique talent given to you. The breath of life itself is that unique power, that unique spark, which is what makes Peter Parker different. That The, the whole story of, of Spider-Man, the whole mythos is built around that coming to age, accepting the responsibility, the great power which comes to you, and the fact that you're not a rock. You actually are something living, breathing. You have a will. You can do great things. God created men and women to do magnificent things. And yet, so often we, we don't understand what it means to step into those shoes. Mm. And Uncle Ben, who is the father figure, he does understand that. And I'm going to let you take us into the Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, so when we were in, in uh, I was going to say sermon prep, uh, the I guess prep show for prep. show prep. Thank you. Uh, the word was escaping me. We were in show prep, and and you read the the Milton quote, and then the scripture text. I immediately thought of uh, this Lord of the Rings quote, which is um, Frodo and and Gandalf commu- talking about Frodo's responsibility as the ring bearer. And Frodo says, "I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened." And Gandalf responded, "So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us." Yeah. Um, and it, it, it and it's a theme that uh, J.R. Tolkien repeats often in his story. And, of course, I think one of my favorite endings out of the trilogy is at the end of um, the, the Two Towers where Sam is talking about, you know, what are we fighting for? And that's there's some good in this world. And, you know, J.R. Tolkien wrote this book after the horrors of World War One that he witnessed, after the horrors of some things that were happening in England locally as well as internationally. And to for someone to live in during the Great War and then also seeing, um, I believe he actually wrote this down towards either in the middle or towards the end of World War II, to see two great wars, yeah. tragedy upon tragedy. If ever there was going to be the end of the world, surely they thought that was going to be during those, those that time period. Yeah. But to then just look around and say, yeah, no, the world sucks right now. <laughs> the world yeah. really is terrible. But instead of focusing on how the world is terrible, let's focus on how we're going to respond to it. And, you know, the next Bible study we're going to have is Galatians uh, 6-7, where do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. That is not just a a guarantee of punishment, though it is. Don't be deceived. (laughs) But it also is a guarantee that if you're sowing those good seeds, if you actually make good on that talent, Hmm. God will reward that. It's a punishment. It's a commitment towards goodness. It is a beautiful thing. Um, but kind of back to your quote here from the Lord of the Rings, you know, that really is the call of all throughout life. You did not ask to be born. You did not ask to be made a man or a woman as opposed to a dog or a bird or a a fish or a, a worm that wiggles through the mud. But yet here you are, here you are in the time in which you live. And that's really built into the story of the Good Samaritan as well. You know, the priest, the Levite, they're worried about the big picture. Let me solve all the world's problems, and it's my chance to be important. Why don't you actually care about the man in the ditch next to you, which is mm-hmm. what the Samaritan does? Because looking at the the little details, you know, whoever's faithful in a little is faithful in a much. Whoever's wicked in a little is wicked in a much. What, why don't you look at the little details in life, which portend larger things, and make good on the talents there? Perhaps you were here for a time such as this. And... You cannot control the world. God doesn't ask you to. You can look there in Acts 16. Paul wants to go all these places, but the Holy Spirit tells him not to. You need to go down there and talk to Lydia. Then there's a a little girl who's being possessed by a demon by some fiends. 
There's evil demons, and then there's an evil fiend possessing this child. You got to cast that out. You got to be pretty serious. There's magistrates that got to be rebuked, and a jailer to be loved. Deal with what what has been entrusted to you. Don't try to solve all the world's problems. But you may not ask for this. Paul probably didn't ask to wake up one day and let me be beat. <laughs> Won't this be fun? But what are you going to do? And I'll let you kind of come back in with the Lord of the Rings thing because it is just great to see how Tolkien worked through the world wars and everything. Oh, yeah. And again, like I think it's very easy for us now in our times, and I'm not downplaying the insanity that is our world right now, but I think sometimes we get disconnected from our past. And we're like, this is the worst it's ever been. And it's like, well, yeah, it is pretty bad. But I mean, just think about how people thought during, you know, the London Blitz or yeah. people in concentration camps, yeah. you know. Great horrors in our world have happened time and time and time and time again. Yeah. And it takes um, these honest voices. And, and J.R. Tolkien never sat down and was like, I'm going to write a great theological thesis. Uh, the Hobbit story, which really was his, his first uh, fiction that he wrote, started as a bedtime story for his children. Yeah. And then out of that, because out of his heart was God's grace, so yeah. through God's grace and through his commitment to art and, and beauty and just fantastic storytelling came these tales that revealed this perseverance that, yeah, th listen, there's always going to be something terrible down the road. Like you, you think you're done battling smog and then, you know, the next thing you know, you're on your way to Mordor. Like it just one thing right after the other. But you keep going because that's what the call of creation is. And it can be easy for us um, to continue my very nerdy analogy uh, of Lord of the Rings. It could be easy for us like the elves to just hop on a boat and go off to safety. But yeah. what if we're called to stay in the muck and the mire and actually bring light and order? And it, it is awful and terrible. But um, again, Gandalf tells us we have to decide what we're going to do with the time given us. And honestly sitting back isn't an option yeah because sitting back really isn't an option to apathy it's an option to promote continual corruption and yeah. disorder yeah so it, we've got to evaluate and do yeah and to kind of build up let's let's flip the script a little <laughs> bit what does the choice really look like because it's not just i can get on a boat no everything's wonderful safety um no as as Mordecai tells Esther, you think you'll be safe there mm -hmm. in the palace? You won't. You won't. And I want us to go now to another classic work of literature, and this is from Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, one of my favorite fictional books of all time. It's just amazing. Um, well, in this, this story, it is the story of a man who has rejected his calling. He, was, he has been that rebellious man, Captain Nemo in that. And he's been the rebellious man who says, did I request the maker to mold me from my clay? And so he rejects life as a man, a land creature, and he builds a submarine. He lives under the sea. And in this whole story, you get a push and pull between somebody who's disloyal to that innate calling and somebody who is loyal to that. And kind of the inverse of Captain Nemo in the story is a man named Kansei. He's a servant to a professor. The professor finds himself, he falls off a ship in the, the middle of the ocean and his servant jumps in the water with him because the master goes into the water, so the servant goes in too. He's loyal to his calling, even though he didn't ask to be there. He didn't ask to be born. And throughout the whole book, Kansei is very nervous about a lot of stuff. He says, you know, I didn't ask to fight the shark, but if the master fights the shark, then Kansei fights the shark too. And um, But in this, there's a great scene 
where Captain Nemo, when he first picks up the main characters, um, Professor Aranax and Kansei, when they first arrive on the submarine boat, they have fallen off of another ship in the middle of the ocean. Which, if you know anything about Genesis, there's this these chaotic waters in the beginning that, that God is hovering over and he creates the heavens and the earth. And they are nothingness. There is no life there. It is meaningless, void emptiness. The beginning of this book, Professor Aranax and Kansei, they fall off of a ship, and there they are. They're in the chaotic waters. And out of nowhere, beneath them comes the submarine boat, the Nautilus. And this is 1865. Nobody's ever seen a submarine before, much less a real submarine. And Captain Nemo brings them down into his ship, and he says to them, and this is a quote from Jules Verne. He says, Most annoying circumstances have brought you into the presence of a man who has broken all ties to humanity. You have come to trouble my existence. And you will remain on board my vessel since fate has cast you here. You will be free. You can do as you may. But in exchange for this liberty, I shall only impose on you one condition. And your word of honor will submit. To submit to it will suffice. And yes, sir, this is it. It is possible that there will be time, certain events that come unforeseen, mysteries, things which may oblige me to consign you to your cabins for some hours or some days, as the case may be. But in thus acting, I take responsibility. I acquit you entirely, and there are things which are impossible for you to see and things which ought not be seen. Do you accept? So this is Captain Nemo, and I've tried to condense it down. It's actually a long conversation, but these are direct excerpts from the book. Um, Captain Nemo, these men have fallen into the sea. They're in the chaotic waters of Genesis. And yet land comes up from beneath them, except it's a submarine. And Nemo tells them, you didn't ask to be here, but you can stay. You can be free. And Nemo's kind of representing God a little bit in this. I mean, it's a book. It's, it's representing these theological ideas. He says, you can remain here. You will be free. You can do whatever you want. But there is one thing, by the way. You will submit to the fact that I have authority. Sometimes you'll be confined. There are mysteries out there, things you can't understand, things which ought not be seen. Do you accept this? And what's interesting about this is it is representing how we are created. We didn't ask to be here. And in the very literal submarine situation, if they tell Captain Nemo no, and he does give him the option to tell him no, he says, all right, well, then I can place you back up there in the waters. You will die. You will drown out there in the chaotic waters of nothingness. No one will ever find your bodies. We're in the middle of the ocean. You will be gone. You will be wiped out from eternity, basically. But if you accept the calling that you didn't ask for, but you were born, you are here, here you are. Most annoying circumstances have brought you into this moment. What are you going to do? And now it's a, a wonderful story. And it is that push and pull. The whole, the whole work of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it is the question, are you the man who says, God, you didn't ask me for my permission to make me and then put me in the year 2021? I wanted to be living in, you know, the Victorian era in a nice <laughs> fancy house or whatever it is. You know, God, you didn't consult me on this. You know, if you're like that, then you're Captain Nemo. Hmm. Or alternatively, you can be like Kansei, who I didn't really want to fight the sharks but Master goes to fight the sharks, and here I am. Here's my, my knife. We're going to fight the sharks. Um, I didn't want to fight the giant squid, but Master fights the giant squid, so here we are. Um, mm. 
And there's just so much built into this. So I, I, I really encourage people to read a lot of these classic works, stuff like Jules Verne, The Lord of the Rings. They, they teach you a lot of these biblical principles, like what is found there in Esther 4, verses 13 and 14. They teach them to you. You didn't ask to be here, but don't think that you can escape it. Mm. Your choice is not, do I live on the submarine or do I go back home? Your choice is, do I live on the submarine or do I die in the void? And Pastor Amanda. Well, and I think that's the thing. With all the chaos that's going in our world, it can be very easy for us to distance ourselves from it and be like, oh, that's happening to other people. That's happening in another state or another country. And, And just say, that's not my problem to deal with. I can keep going on as life goes on. And to a certain extent, that is true. I mean, if you don't have people breaking down your doors, you don't have people breaking down your doors where you live. But to not respond in some way, to not speak up, anytime evil exists and enacts its will against another person, and you say nothing, you do nothing, then you're allowing that to continue to be perpetrated. And just because you may think that you have certain resources or barriers that keep you away from evil it's coming, it's coming. Yeah. yeah it's there, coming. there's nothing and it may look different for different people in different times but to think that somehow we are not responsible to well, stand up and speak is yeah and that actually is going to move us into our next conversation okay. this whole idea that evil is coming for you so are we pretty good yeah. we're ready to move on to that yeah let's do it all right we'll be back here in a moment for another segment where we're going to look at another quote from classics of literature and then we're going to talk a little bit more about how you really can't escape stuff it really is coming so we'll be back all righty and since we don't have a separate producer in here now to run all this stuff, now you get the bad use of me running the soundboard and all the sound equipment and stuff. But anyways, we're back to have good things going on. Enough of that woe is me junk. Let's talk about goodness and how we sow it and recognition that in fallen creation, evil is coming for you. So I want us to look at another quote from Paradise Lost, and then I'll kind of preface it and let Amanda respond. Because she was already going in that direction. I just wanted to throw this quote in there. So... Paradise Lost is this whole book on rebellion in a lot of different ways, whether the cosmic rebellion of Satan and hell, which is where we're going to go now. We're going to go down to hell. I shouldn't joke like that. We're going to have a window into hell and see Satan talking to his miserable comrades in hell. He, he gets some other fiends, thugs, demons around him, and he says, To do alt proper... Never be our undertaking, but to ever do ill is our sole pride. Mm. And what he is essentially saying is to do good, to do what is right, is not our undertaking. It's not our task. But to ever do evil is our sole pride. Now, the reason why this is such an important theological thought is because in our modern world, we've been taught that goodness is something which is relative. It changes from person to person. What's good for you is different than what's good for me. You know, what's right by your eyes is different from mine. This book, it reminds us that that is not, in fact, true. Goodness, it has some connection to God. Oftentimes, we use goodness to mean something is satisfactory or pleasing. You know, earlier today, we had some cream soda Dr. Peppers, which were kind of good, different. Um, It's an interesting thing. You know, we might say that was a good drink. It had a good taste. But you're not talking about goodness. You're talking about that cream soda Dr. Pepper. To actually understand goodness is not something that's just pleasing or satisfactory. In English, we throw this word around a lot, but for something to really be good means it has some connection to God's great will. 
And Satan, when he's in hell, and he looks to his miserable comrades, he says, to do aught good, to do aught proper, never is our undertaking. But to ever do evil, unwell, that is our sole pride. And you see, the truth is, Satan is not going to do anything which is good. Because for something to be good doesn't just mean it pleases him. Because obviously, the, I don't know if anybody's noticed this, but the ancient serpent kind of likes to please himself. Um, and it's, it's not good. But he is there to do something which is ungodly. If he were to do good, then he would be do something which is actually righteous before God. And he's not here for that. And built into the way that Paradise Lost is written is this understanding that good is not changing from person to person, time to time, from the devil to God. Goodness is connected to God. And so I'll kind of let you, you come in with that because evil is out there to do its wickedness. And another thing he says down there, he says, you know, in, in the, the mind is a world of its own. And they, you can make heaven a hell or you can make hell a heaven. Mm. And I'm here to bring people down to this nasty place. The devil looks around in hell and he's like, this place is gross. He, he pretty much says that, but he's like, you know what? It's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Mm. So we're going to pull people down here. We're going to eat them. That's basically what he says. <laughs> I'll just let you come in a minute. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's where, um, just as our, our English language is limited in our description of love, it, it has also failed us in the topic of goodness. Yeah. Um, you know, again, like we've talked about in the first segment about responding to the call, responding to the times given to us. Each person who responds to that call, it's going to look different for different people. But that's not the ultimate goodness we're talking about. The goodness is the response. So yeah. whether your response looks like uh, preaching to millions or living a good life, life defined as in the the life of the trinity in response to the grace of of our god whether you what the results are secondary to the goodness that you are called towards and i think that's what's interesting here is you know again i mean even our scripture says that even even satan and the demons know who jesus is it's not the confession that jesus is the christ that saves you it's living into that reality that that well, it is the faithfulness of Christ that saves you, but it is your response that enables you to be that which you were created to be. And and I think also, like, Satan knows who he is, and I envy that. The demons know who they are. They, they're not confused about their place in the world. They know what good is. They know what evil is. I mean, they've got a better theology than 99% of us do. And... and and yet, even knowing all that, obviously they're still making the wrong choice. I just think it, it fascinates me for us as human beings as we are floating around on this rock, how we will spend hours and, and days of our energy and our intellect trying to debate what is good and what is truth. And I think sometimes I don't have the answers in the sense of what is good to do right now. Uh, you know, well, I know... Well, if- if I can just come in for one second. Yeah. Because you mentioned earlier, the goodness is not just in the, the result of the action. I'm going to push that a little bit further back and say the goodness is not in the action either, or the response, as you said. The goodness is something which is even beyond the breath of life. Mm. The goodness, it is back there all the way with God. Yeah. And there's a whole series of events that, that come down to as to where we do live where we have our choices, we have our behaviors, and they have their results and all that stuff. But the goodness isn't just in 
a, a methodology or some formula we put together, the goodness is, is deeper than that. Why are you responding? Why are you living? Why are you breathing? Why are you trying to even navigate towards anything at all as opposed to just sitting naked on a rock and waiting to die? Yeah. You know, and that's just... I'll well, no, kinda, and I think that's what I was trying to say yeah. is sometimes we can get caught up in the methodologies. Yeah. And we're like, oh, you're good because you did the thing that's popular right now. Or you're good because you didn't do the popular thing. The, that's secondary. It still can be very important. Listen, we're not throwing methodology out the window here. But what the, the primary expression is that God is good. Yeah. And God is good because God loves and then li- lives out that love. Like God's just not a hypothetical lover. God actually loves. Yeah. And, and that's what like I think we can waste all this time trying to have intellectual conversations. Again, those aren't bad. But we can try to dissect things down to the, the edge of a pencil point. But if we are not loving our neighbor, if we are not yeah. loving God, if we are not caring for creation, if we are not enacting goodness, yeah. then we've missed it. And yeah. we, we could do all the quote unquote right things. But if there is no love and goodness that motivates yeah. us, it, listen, it could still happen in acts. I think accidentally, a lot of times we may be good. Um, but if we are not purposefully and intentionally being good, then we are only seeing but a small portion of what yeah. God has called us towards. Yeah. And, and I think this is where, like, we're then getting into our Galatians text. Listen, where it says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. God is not deluded or illus- uh, confused by our actions. God knows our heart. God knows yeah. our actions. And we will be judged by a just and loving God. Not just one day, but I think every day. Yeah. And that is not a condemning thing in the sense that we should walk around with our heads hung low and just try to fade in the background. That is, should be an empowering thing yeah. that our God sees us. Our God hears us. Well, kind of to your point there, God actually wants you to be spared on the day of judgment. Yeah. Yeah, there is a hell to be repulsed. There is a hell waiting. But God actually wants you to be saved. Yeah, and, and I think God wants us not just only to avoid hellfire, God wants us to live a fully, fully abundant life now. And that's why God speaks to us. That's why God gives us free will and created creativity and imaginations and this capacity to love like no other creature on this earth can do. Yeah. And again, with that great responsibility, uh, great power comes great responsibility. And I think God knows our hearts. And listen, sometimes we can have the best intentions and we mess up. And God is gracious to love and forgive and direct and correct. But, you know, what would happen if we then started, and I think this is where we are going with that next part of that passage, a man will reap what he sows. What if we were more intentional uh, intentional about sowing good things, not temporary things that might look good, yeah, but, but actually yeah. good things. And, you know, that is really, that is the question that we've got to have the answer to because the world is is in a place where things cannot be sustained as they are. And, and you got to put aside all the things that we outsource the battle of good and evil in. You can look there in Genesis. God doesn't end each day of creation and saying, and the void was bad. And that was bad. And that was bad. The end of each day of creation ends with, and God saw that that it was good. God sees that these things are good. He creates something and he asserts the good, the true, and the beautiful. And we don't know how to do that in our modern world. This has been the hardest thing for me as a pastor here in the year 2020, which was last year. We're now in 2021. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) When you strip away everything, 
You take away your television, which can, you know, live out life for you, can take you on adventures that you can't go on yourself. You take away the TV, take away the movies, take away the ability to have leaders who have courage on your behalf. Take away all that. Take away all the representatives. Take away everything. And you find yourself standing there in the valley of the shadow of death alone, you and God. Can you declare what is good, true, and beautiful? Mm. Not in using the world, the world's words, if I can say that, the world's mm. vocabulary to say this is how somebody's valued, this is a good perspective, this is a good idea. Throw away all that. What is good? What is true? What is beautiful? What is of God? Can you declare that there in the valley of the shadow of death? That is the question. That's something we've really got to learn to answer. Can you sow that? When you take away all the tools that help you there, you know, you read that verse, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. It doesn't say a man will reap what someone else sows, what someone else comes and like hands him and sows for him. What you actually do with the talents entrusted to you. Are you able to actually sow goodness? Are you willing to do that in your life? Hmm. Because so often we've relied on so many things to do this for us where we feel like we're alive. You know, oh, I saw somebody on social media. Oh, I feel like I've seen them. No, you, you really haven't. Mm-hmm. They may be putting up a totally fraudulent version of themselves online. You may be thinking, oh, I look so, you know, old compared to so-and-so, and they've got a picture of themselves from, like, high school up. You know, <laughs> all this, like, silly yeah. stuff that people do. But, you know, that's kind of a, just a metaphor. We, we get wrapped up in the falsehood, but when you actually strip all of that away, you stand in the valley of the shadow of death by yourself. You and God, what are you sowing? What are you doing with the talent entrusted to you? And that's actually hard to answer that question. Maybe it is as simple as, as, as simply enduring while saying Christ is Lord and the beast is not. I, I hope that is, that is, you know, it, it, scripture indicates to us coming to Christ saying, you are Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That will suffice. Mm-hmm. But even after you, after you spent years maturing, answering the question, what is good? That is hard. That's actually a lot harder than people people realize because we haven't really been trained to do that. No. Well, and I think, again, we get caught up in the eminent, immediate results. And, you know, this is saying, really, as Paul continues, he says, one day we will, you know, we'll finally get the reward. Yeah. Uh, Paul's not seeing the reward right now as he's being beaten. He's yeah. not seeing it right now as he's thrown in prison and, and you know, s- soon to be executed. He's not seeing his reward right away but he knows it's coming and i think our world is so easily distracted and i mean listen there's tests that are done because of technology because of of various things although there are great benefits the 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 consequences of some of this technology is our brain has been wired rewired for immediate results more than it ever has and we think now because you know things are so bad and we're not getting what we want right now that the, the this is it the world has ended yeah. and this is not in god listen even when the world does end and there is nothing but the kingdom guess what we're called to do worship and yeah. praise god and live in community with one another and how awesome is that the call of god does not change whether the world has ended or not the call of god remains the same yeah. worship and love one another oh, and and, wrong. and and i think what is amazing is that, like you said, this Galatians passage can both be very daunting, but also very relieving. That it says, listen, you're called to love. I don't know what loving others always looks like in the sense of what does that mean? And we can go into things like when helping hurts or uh, how to stand in the gap when with people and, and 
the horrors of, of unjust systems that we have in our world. And, and I think really, like you said earlier, it has to start one with God. And then it, I think being a good neighbor Yeah. and what that looks like in your context, I can't speak to, but just to look around and says, all right, who is my neighbor? Yeah. How am I to be a good neighbor? And that doesn't alleviate us from the great cosmic things that are happening around us completely. But to ask those questions of ourselves and then to go and act out those answers yeah. will put us in a place where then we can better respond to whether yeah. it's small or big. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing is, is you're actually doing more to affect those cosmic things when you pay attention to the neighbor that's actually your neighbor. Right. Not the, the person that you like hypothetically feel like my neighbor, even though they're on the other side of the planet, but the people that you actually know, the people that God has entrusted into your life, when you actually make good on those talents real goodness can be sown. And, you know, you kind of mentioned when everything does go away, there will be a moment when Christ sits on that seat of judgment and the heavens and earth flee. There there will be that moment. But there's also a new heaven and a new earth afterwards. So we really have to put all of that in perspective. And what does it mean to actually sow those seeds of truth? Because we haven't been trained to do that. We've been trained to beat up on this, beat up on that, you know, really have the woe and lamentations. This is all the stuff I hate in the world. This is the problem with everything. You know what? There is evil to be repulsed. There's a hell to be repulsed, but there's also a heaven to be admired. And my generation in particular has not been trained, and maybe the world never will train you. You can't even blame it on that either. You've got to sort that out. Look to God. Assert what is good. Mm -hmm. Declare what is true. Be the prophet who sees clearly and is willing to speak into that. And that's not always easy, but it is a vital thing. And then I'll let you have the final words on this conversation, and we'll come back with some fun by Silla Holt. You know, I'm not sure I have any any more novel thoughts. I think it is. Um, this is our call, and this is and God has enabled us to respond to it, and it may not feel like it sometimes. We are tired, and we feel exhausted that the world keeps finding new things to throw at us, but. You know, everything God asks of us, God has already endured. God has already conquered. So we go in strength in that. Amen. All right. So look at that. I can do a smooth transition over here and talk. (laughs) You got it down? Got it down. Yay. All righty. Let's do some buy, sell, or hold. Okay. And this is going to be a list of nine things that you may or may not want to be caught wearing when Christ returns. (laughs) And we're going to set aside all things. We're just, for now, a basic understanding. There'll be a rapture. Everybody goes up and you go and see God immediately. That's kind of the the framework we're dealing with here. Um, For better or for worse, just setting (laughs) this. The game, the rules of this game is that. And these are nine things. Would you want to be wearing this? And would you be okay if God saw you? wearing this in the day of when you stand before st peter at the gate yes yes okay so coming in at number nine your pajamas whatever you sleep in there at night if the you know comes in the middle of the night would you be all right in what you sleep in at night it depends on the night that that almost makes me want to wear um my better pajamas (laughs) like make sure it's not the ratty old t-shirt and sweats uh, yeah, no, I think most nights I'm, I would probably be embarrassed if I went to heaven in those clothes or had to haunt people in those clothes. That would be bad. <laughs> so you're going to sell on that? I'm going to sell on that, yeah. And I'm going to sell on that too. Like, please give me some some forewarning. Though I, again, maybe I need to wear better better, better clothes pajamas. at night. Yeah, nicer pajamas. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, number eight on our list is a smoking jacket. Now this is something which is not so common in the modern day and age, but people used to have their special jacket they would put on when they, you know, lit one up. Um, what do we think about this? Wearing a smoking jacket. You know, for the ladies out there, we watch our old TV shows like Poirot and stuff like that. People put on their like their fur, so we can have for the ladies. You can imagine something like that. Mm. Um, Amanda, would you buy sell a hold on wearing your? You know, fancy smoking fancy. outfit. I would buy that. Um, I, I'm not sure I want to roll up onto the gates of heaven smelling like smoke. That that would give me kind of a slightly different. You're, you know, <laughs> like just pre-smoked before you even get to. Uh, anyways, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, no, but it, being dressed up sounds nice, so I'll buy it. You'll buy it. Well, you know, it's also like you're dressed up to do a vice. Mm. So it's it's interesting there. I'm gonna buy this one just because a lot of smoking jackets are really cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to buy it. It is a nice attire. Um, yeah. All right. Number seven is underwear. If you got caught in your underwear, <laughs> would this be something that you would be proud of to stand before St. Peter? If, if you had to stand before God, which again, God watches us anyway, so he knows what we look like. But if God's looking at you and you, you have that sort of awareness <laughs> where you realize God is really looking at you, it really is real being there in that moment. Would you be all right in your underwear? Yeah, I think I'd have to buy or sell that one. Sell it. Definitely sell it. Because that, you know, all, yeah, everything that is hidden will be revealed. I'm just not sure I want to reveal that much. Would it be better or worse to be naked than in the underwear? What, what I mean, what? Yeah, no, see, I is just don't Is it at the even, same level? I, no, I think, I think there's enough emotional nakedness that would be going through if we're, we're thinking this very, very, like, much in the terms of kind of a left behind old, tracked way of thinking of of the end times but if we're going to continue this paradigm i just you're already revealing a lot of i'm not i'm not sure i would want some clothing <laughs> yeah yeah I, somehow i feel like being completely naked would be less shameful than yeah, it's facade. already just all yeah. out there yeah just that's kind of what i'm thinking it day. Yeah. yeah it might as well yeah <laughs> anyway so i'm gonna i'm gonna sell this when so you don't want to be caught like this yeah no all right number six a costume. Would you buy anybody caught in any sort of costume that kind of goes on there, whether it be like a Halloween costume, you know, whatever, some sort of goofy <laughs> outfit that's not really serious, but you've put on to kind of be comical? Would you want to be caught in that? That would be, f- that would be kind of funny because isn't that the whole point of like the Halloween tradition of wearing masks and costumes is so the like the evil spirits wouldn't catch you, yeah, like wouldn't find you. So again, you're almost playing with some like very weird traditions to show up to a place trying to not be yourself, and yet you are known exactly as who you are. Um, I want to buy that. I think that would be interesting and fun. You know, I'm going to sell it because of some of the costumes I have. I have a giant like foam SpongeBob costume. Oh, I would not want to be wearing terrible. that. That is terrible. Why not. do you own? That? Well, I had it when back from when I was in like high school. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> But I've also got like a St. Patrick costume, costume and stuff like that, which is all, that's kind of embarrassing too. I mean, like you, you meet St. Peter, you're dressed up as another saint. Like that's just embarrassing. Um, so I'm going to sell on that one. That's great though. I like the, the mental images are just hilarious. Yeah. I like this. Yeah. There's, yeah, that would be embarrassing. All right. So they, they have souvenir t-shirts, which say, you know, sometimes profane things, sometimes not, but you've got like highway to hell, which is the, the ACDC. If you had something like that, going on how would you feel about that the the souvenir t-shirt which is a little on the you know it's a little edgy edgy i i think again like speaking things into existence that's just a bad you're setting the tone for that judgment pretty pretty much not in your favor at that point so 
I think that would be wearing a t-shirt that says like highway to hell or I did it my way or something like yeah. that song lyrics would be worse than if you showed up like in your pajamas so <laughs> I yeah just... I think that would be worse too um I'm gonna sell sell yeah all right and we're getting into the last four okay um number four being sagging pants <laughs> and we're gonna throw some other stuff in this category too you know just really goofy styles that are goofy and known to be goofy and just like wearing obscene things, clothes that don't fit right, just sagging pants, whatever. <laughs> I don't, we'll just let that Just be. very, um, like clothing that was considered cool for a very small amount of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, that would be embarrassing, I think. Um, I just think it would, it would just, you want to put your best foot forward. It just did. And also, like, they're doing a lot of BuzzFeed and things like that, or, or, you know, looking back to the 90s or the early 2000s growing up for our generation and like the fashions we thought was so cool and just how utterly humiliating they were. But to think not only to be judged by your peers 10 years later, but to be judged by the God of the ages and <laughs> you're <laughs> sagging pants to be judged by the God of the ages <laughs> by sagging pants. <laughs> just, Let God be the reviewer of that fashion. Yeah, oh I don't gosh. think I want to know yeah, the, no. yeah, the, the, the cosmic fashion police on that one. That would be bad. Yeah. So that I'm would be sell bad. That. Yeah. Big sale. Um, number three, this one's actually an interesting choice because this is kind of something not a lot of people wear, but it also is a reality. Linen. I had a pair of linen pants that were fairly comfortable, and I didn't realize they were like see-through. When you went outside, <laughs> when you were wearing them inside, they they weren't see-through. And then you go outside, and you find out like everybody can see your underwear when you're outside in linen, and like that's just really embarrassing. Don't don't even make linen <laughs> pants clothing companies. Yeah, that's I just think, dumb. Yeah, unless you are in. I don't know, turn of the century, maybe the early 1900s, and you're in some Caribbean island. Like, I just, I'm not sure why you're even wearing linen in the first place. Like, because that's the whole purpose was it's supposed to be thin and breathable. Um, it, it had a very contextual purpose. Uh, nowadays, yeah, I had a linen shirt, same thing. Like, you just didn't realize how see-through they were until you're in the sunlight. It's just awful. And, I mean, we are in the South, but we're not far enough, warm enough for that even to yeah. be practical. So I think that would just be, again, <laughs> yes, the, the light of the ages revealing yes, everything. the brilliant light of God going through your linen pants, and there you are. Yeah, it's no, terrible. sail on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number two. All right. And number one, I think, is pretty clever. I like this. Pastor Mike put this list together for us. Number two being your pants undone. <laughs> And I'm going to throw something into this um, embarrassing things being tucked into your pants and like your shirt tucked into your underwear. That's going to go in there, too. One of the most embarrassing things that's ever happened to me while preaching is when I was first preaching and wherever there where Pastor Amanda's at now at Trinity Church of the Nazarene, they used to have a 2 p.m. service. And when I was in college, I would preach there at their 2 p.m. service when I was just starting to preach. So this is like 10 years ago, maybe 11 now. And I was preaching there one time. And when I got done preaching, I've realized the tail of the suit coat I had on was tucked into my pants. And I used to be somebody who walked around a lot when I preached. And I was like, oh, gosh, <laughs> they these saw this. These, all these people. And you may have been there. I was like, oh, these people have probably seen this. I've, I've been embarrassed about that for years. Most of <laughs> the point now we're just let it all out in the open. Let it be known. But going before God with like <laughs> your shirt tucked into your underwear or your pants undone, that would be so embarrassing. 
Oh my goodness. That would be terrible. And I mean, there's so many stories that I was about to say before you said you walked around, I was like, there was a huge pulpit at Trinity before the sanctuary burnt down. I mean, that sucker could engulf two or three people could preach behind it. It was such a huge pulpit. You probably were safe until you moved around yeah. from behind it. But, oh, I, uh, yeah, that would be embarrassing. I don't know. Again, who knows how the end times will actually work. But if there is an assembly line where we get to go before God, I just hope I'm far enough back in the line where you can, like, fix yourself up a little bit before you go and see God. Like, yes. Y- yeah. <laughs> Make sure your pants are done up and your shirt's not tucked into your underwear and you don't have a suit coat tucked into, like, yeah. Yeah, that'd be bad. So I'm selling on this one for sure. Yeah, so. Um, number one. <laughs> There might be some people mad at us over this one, but you know what? Send me a pitchfork to 6186 Eaton's Creek Road. Um, number one, Crocs. Crocs. Oh, Crocs. no. I think that and would be the most embarrassing. Let me let me preface Crocs like this because I own Crocs. Um, <laughs> I own a pair of Crocs from when I was in high school. When I was in high school, they were very popular. Mm-hmm. A lot of people wore Crocs with everything year-round. Like, and also, when I was in school, you could not have your socks seen. Like, it was a big social no-no if you, you saw mm. sock scene, and, and you'd get beat up, like, if people saw your socks. But um, well, you could wear Crocs? Yeah, with Crocs, you just had to be barefoot. Um, <laughs> it's the only way you could pull that off. But people wear Crocs a lot. Went to my parents' house a couple of months ago, and something happened. I had an old pair of shoes on. They started coming apart, and they got dirty and some stuff, and I was like, these shoes are junk. I just threw them away. And I found the pair of Crocs I had in high school. And I was like, I'll just wear these home. And so they came up, they, they came home with me. <laughs> and a couple of nights later, uh, it, was, it was like midnight, you know, I um, got the TV on. I'm standing next to the fireplace because it started to get cool. And I needed to go outside for something, which I normally wear shoes in the house anyway, but I don't away the shoes I wear inside, um, obviously. And where I was thinking to myself, I was like, I can put on those Crocs. I was like, I can, I can wear those Crocs outside for a minute. And I was like... Man, the dogs are gonna see me in like a t-shirt <laughs> and a pair of gym shorts. I'm not married yet. I do want to get married. Like I, I can't even let the dogs see me. If if I give up on life and I'm just the dude who sits at home and watches TV in Crocs and gym shorts and a t-shirt, I was like, I can't even let the dogs see me stoop to this level, because um, that's like the sign that you've. You're just done. If I was married, like maybe I could, I could be fine with that. But like right now, it's like I've got to have some more aspiration. The man is over there laughing at me. Um, <laughs> but you you can't give up on life just yet. It's kind of where I was at. It's like oh, so I stuck the Crocs in a place where they they're still there, but they're fir- firmly hidden away where I don't have their temptation to be that that um whatever. <laughs> Amanda, what do you think? Buy sell a whole Crocs. <laughs> um, <I> sorry, that's <laughs> just funny. Um, yeah, I'm gonna sell them. That, that's a uh, I don't understand why they got so big, and I get that they're supposed to be comfortable, but, like... They're not uncomfortable. They're right. not the worst. No, they're not. But I think the thing, like, if you're talking about them as house shoes or, you know, you just got to slip on to take the trash out or get the mail real quick, okay, you got me there. But, like, I I knew people growing up that wore them, and that was, like, their work shoes, like, to oh, do yeah. yard work. Yeah. And I'm like, okay... They're not even good for yard work because there's not much protecting your toes no. from that mower blade. Like, no. it's just insane. And I, I just, oh, that's funny. Oh, man, we I just to can't. do everything in high school. is like crap. That is crazy. ridiculous. Again, to stand before the God of the ages and be like, yep, this is my best foot forward right here. Like, gosh, is like, I hope not. 
Yes, and when the light of all creation looks down at you and sees those Crocs. <laughs> oh gosh, people are going to be so mad at us. I do own Crocs. Like they're not uncomfortable, but no. I don't I don't know that God would want to look at me in that. I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't care. Maybe he sees all the dumb stuff we do and he's like, "Yeah, okay, Crocs." That's that is what my creatures have made. That's his list of dumb things. Yeah, they're not <laughs> evil. They're not evil. They're not a point against you, but it is definitely not a point for you either. Yeah. And and, you know, a lot of stuff fits in that category, but just God looking at us. Oh, my dear child. <laughs> yes. But, you know, Crocs have come a long way. They have all sorts of Crocs. And when That's I was, what's phenomenal to me. You can get high-heeled Crocs. And I'm just like, okay, if the idea of this is to be a comfort shoe, if the truth, if the goodness of the shoe is out of its functionality, how does high-heeled Crocs work? Yeah. They're not even good by their own standards. I just can't. You know, when I was in high school, it was getting popular to have those fashion Crocs, and I got a pair that had like a, a linen-style top. They were made by Crocs, but they looked more like a boat shoe. Those were the most uncomfortable things ever. Oh, they were like trying to be like a che- cheap version yeah. of a Sperry or something? Yeah, and like the, they basically had a saw blade all the way around that just wanted to saw on your foot. It was so awful. <laughs> but um, anyways, we'll wrap up with this question. So I think we've sold wearing those before God. Um, Hopefully. Do you... Uh, or Justin, who's Amanda's husband, if anyone's not familiar. Do you or Justin own Crocs? No, we, we do not. You do not? No. Not uh, since high school. Not since high school. Oh, that didn't put the camera over there on you. Um, all righty. <laughs> well, there's our list. Send your complaints over here to 6186 Eaton Creek Road. You can have that attention passion to Mike Proctor because he's the one who put this list to us. There you go. Um, even though he's not with us here today. But let's go ahead and wrap up. We're actually going to fit right in an hour like we're supposed to. Mm, Uh, Let's have a closing prayer, and then we'll have some final thoughts, just some interesting things we've seen in the world, and um, some kind of uplifting, just interesting novelty things. Believe it or not, there is good good to be talked about. Um, Pastor Amanda, would you pray for us as we close? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray that we have been faithful uh, to respond to your call. And now for uh, those who have listened and those who you have spoken to, um, hopefully through us, that you give them courage, eyes to see and ears to hear. And uh, may we, may everything we do be a response to your love. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And as I said, some quick final thoughts. One of the things I have noticed is there are a lot of people who realize everything is kind of falling away and there's a demand right now for state-of-the-art low-tech. And you can find a lot of devices out there that are like right on paper, even though it's electronic. There are cell phones you can buy, which are kind of coming back in popularity, which aren't smartphones, just kind of feature phones, black and white screens. You're seeing an increase on that, but they're really expensive. Mm. Like $400 for a phone that does texting and calling, but doesn't even have a color screen, um, no camera or anything. It's crazy, but there is a market for that. Which actually is one of those little details, again, whoever is faithful in little is faithful in lot. It's a little detail that predicts a larger thing in the world. It shows you that people are looking to escape from this sensationalism, which is everywhere in the world. You know, Jude talks about those who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness. Everything in our world has trained us to think in that sensuality that's immediate. Now, we talked about that earlier, but there's a market to escape from that. And it's mm. interesting to see how the world, the secular world, is even trying to play in that arena through making super low-tech, state-of-the-art phones. I don't know. So, Amanda, mm-hmm. anything interesting like that you've seen? 
um no uh i'm trying to think um you know just just kind of random good things justin i've been watching just a lot of kind of dumb generic action films recently and i think there is something to say like we do need to take time and take a step back and just find whatever that is for you whatever that hobby is whatever that uh quiet time is but just to take a step back and we do have control over that as much as we think we don't like you're saying like people want this low-tech stuff listen if facebook is driving you crazy turn off your notifications delete the app if you have to doesn't mean you have to run away from like society or talking to people but just create healthy boundaries yep and and live into that and just find peace in that and Whatever that is for you, but it, it just, yeah, I, I think you're right. It is that technology, although crazy expensive for being low tech, it is responding. I think people are realizing a lot of this stuff is emotional consumerism. Yeah. And if we're going to find health, we got to take a step back. Yeah. All righty. And on that note, I know we're on Facebook right now being live. <laughs> you can find us other places. You can find us on YouTube at Kingdom of the Logos. And we have a Rumble page, which is called the Nazarene Stream Preacher. I'm hoping to break that off where there's just a Kingdom of the Logos page. But I do a game streaming there. You can find these episodes on that. So check us out there so you can escape from the craziness that is Facebook. And on that, God love you and have a blessed day.